Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. So good to see all of you this morning, and we're going to be continuing in our uh, Summer Psalm series for 2021. And as we read Psalm 133 together, I would ask you to all please rise, then I'll pray, and then by all means, uh, please be seated afterwards. We rise for God's word, and you're free to sit for mine. Psalm 133, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down upon the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down to the edge of his garments. Now let's read the final verse of this psalm together. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your precious word this morning. How we thank you for the beautiful words of this psalm. Oh, dear God, it is our desire this morning that you be glorified, that the name of our Lord be honored, and for that, dear God, we need your spirit to teach us. Would you be pleased, dear God, to have the true teacher of your word instruct us in its meaning this morning? Not just to fill our heads, but to fill our hearts as well with desire to obey all that we learn. We ask now, as did the psalmist so long ago, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. We ask all this for your name's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as her brother David reminded us when he taught from Psalm 124, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 is pretty much a unit. Individual psalms but they are known as the great Hallel, Hallel praise in Hebrew. They are the great praise. They were sung as the pilgrims, the Jewish pilgrims, three times a year, every male, and sometimes with their families, would go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice to the Lord. And as they approached Jerusalem, which is over 2,500 feet, above sea level, as they would start to climb up towards Jerusalem, they would begin with Psalm 120, and they would sing. And as they entered the city, they'd be finishing the great Hallel, Psalm 133, and then Psalm 134. For those truths that we will look at in just a moment, all of these truths were leading up to one key thing, and it's in, would you advance the slides, please? The key thing that they were all heading for at the temple was to worship the Lord, and this is the final psalm of the great Hallel. Just three verses again. Behold, bless the Lord. All you servants of the Lord, 
who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. There were priests and Levites serving in the house of the Lord, the temple. They're instructed to lift their hands, which in for the Jews, even to this day, the Orthodox Jews, when they pray, they will lift their hands like this. This is lifting the hands. They were instructed to lift their hands to the Lord, the Lord who made heaven and earth. And that he would be blessed by them and that he in turn would bless them. It was all focused and headed towards worship, the true worship of the Lord God. All our life, every aspect of it, should be, as Paul writes in Romans 12, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is, depending on your translation, your reasonable service of worship, your spiritual service of worship, a better way to translate that because Paul, in writing Romans 12, used a very particular word in the original Greek language in which he wrote. It was used of priestly service, your priestly service of worship, just like we have here in Psalm 134. All our lives, not just three times a year, not just when those priests and Levites were serving their two weeks of duty in the temple, but every day of our life, we have that same priestly service of worship. Every moment of every day of our life, that is what we are geared towards. That is what God desires from us. That worship can be expressed in so many different ways. Songs of praise, our prayers, uh, our service in preaching the gospel and in serving one another in brotherly love. But this will never happen. True worship will never happen. True vertical worship between us individually and us as a local church will never happen unless the truth of Psalm 133 is living and active and powerful in our lives individually and in our church collectively. The title of today's message, if you like titles, is Behold How Good. Behold How Good. This psalm is all about dwelling together in unity. And most of you who are here know what damage can be done to a church by not living together in unity. It'll destroy a local church. But I'll tell you this, that is the horizontal. The horizontal only reveals what already exists in the vertical. When there is disharmony, when there is disunity, when there is discord horizontally, whether it be in a marriage or a family, whether it be at the job or in the neighborhood or in a local church, that sin, that disunity is not 
causing sin. It's revealing sin that already existed and already existed vertically between the individuals and their Lord. The vertical always precedes the horizontal. The horizontal always reveals the vertical. This psalm is all about dwelling together in unity. And as we go through this psalm, and we don't want to just leave it there in Jewish worship, we're going to look at some New Testament passages as well to show how important unity is in the Christian church. If you take only one thing away from today's message, let it be this, what we see on this slide. We can only please God in Christ if we as believers dwell together in unity. We're only fooling ourselves if we think our life is pleasing to God in Christ if we are not dwelling with one another in unity. This psalm breaks down into just two points. A statement about unity in verse 1 and the symbols, two symbols of unity in verses 2 and 3. So let's look at what the psalmist states about unity in verse 1. He says, behold, his first word, behold, look, see, observe. Behold is like verily, verily, like truly, truly. When our Lord Jesus Christ would begin a statement with, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, pay attention. This is important. Behold functions in the exact same way. Look, observe, see, scrutinize. Don't miss this. Behold how good and how pleasant. Not just good and pleasant, but how good and how pleasant the magnitude of it, the enormity of it, the glory of it. For brethren, brothers and sisters, for you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, to dwell, to live together, to worship together, to fellowship together in unity. This word unity, I'll tell you two other verses of Scripture where it's used. That same Hebrew word. It's used in what may be the most famous of all Old Testament passages. Every Orthodox Jewish boy will read this passage in Hebrew at his bar mitzvah. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's known as the Shema. That's the Hebrew word. It means hear, hear. But Jews call it the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's the word translated unity. It's often a plurality of things united into one. It's used of the spies who spied out the land of Canaan and came back carrying a pole and a cluster of grapes, a huge cluster of grapes, many grapes in one cluster. They came back with the same word, yachad, a yachad of grapes, a unity of grapes, a multiple of grapes in one, 
the Lord our God is Yahad, is one, a plural unity. Here, it's the Jews. For us, it's the church. There's many of us here, over a hundred of us here. The Lord views us as one. He wants us to be one. I'm sure all of you have heard of a last will and testament. Sometimes they're prepared ahead of time. Sometimes in classic Hollywood fashion, it could be on the deathbed. Taking down the last will and testament. How all our worldly goods will be disposed of. Who will receive what. But also as part of many last wills and testaments, the dying parent might say, I want my two sons to get along. I want my two daughters to get along. I want there to be love and harmony between siblings. Put your rivalry, your fights, your wars, your differences aside. Grant my dying wish that you be one. Did you know the Lord Jesus Christ had a last will and testament? Had nothing to do with his worldly goods because he wore all his worldly goods and he knew the next day that they would divide his outer garments into pieces amongst themselves, the Roman soldiers, and they would gamble. They would cast lots for his one-piece inner garment. So he had no worldly goods to dispose of. But he had dying wishes. And it's recorded in the 26 verses of John 17. That is our Lord's last will and testament. There is one thing that he prayed for five times in those 26 verses. Five times. You think that's important? Behold, truly, truly, holy, 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 we read in Isaiah 6. If one behold is important, if two verilies are important, if three holy, holy, holies is of supreme importance, how much more are five requests for the same thing? Prayed once for the apostles, four times for you and I. Jesus prayed this to the Father in John 17, in verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, why keep them? For what purpose? That they may be one as we are. That they may be one. That they may be a unity. Twelve men united with one purpose, with one goal in life. To spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and bring glory to God in Christ. In verse 20, he begins to pray for others, all others. I do not pray for these, the 12 apostles alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Those who lived in the first century through the spoken word of the apostles. Since that time and even during that time, the latter half of the first century, and down to us today through their written word, the New Testament scriptures. Christ is now going to pray for you and I. Watch what he prays for four times. 
for you and I. That, the first words out of his mouth in the very next verse, that they all, not some, not a few, not most, not the vast majority, but they all may be one. How are we to be one? As you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one. He repeats himself. It's that important. It's a verily, verily. That they also may be one in us. You see, notice the in us. We are so different, you and I. Most of us have only one thing in common. And that's God in Christ. That's our Christian faith. Now, some of you have other things in common. You know, I, I, there, there's, there, there's a brother here. He is a real man's man. He's everything in that regard that I am not. He's an outdoors guy. He's an athlete. I'm a bookworm. I, I have nothing in common with this, this man. But when I see him here on Sundays and, and at midweek service, my heart's just drawn to him. I love this brother. And there's been times where he's confronted me, and I love his direct approach. Look, I'm ex-military. He's not the enemy trying to kill me. So when he says something to me flat out, it comes from a heart of love on his part, and I take it that way. But I love this guy. And I won't mention his name because I know he wouldn't want me to mention his name, but, but the, I feel a bond with this brother, even though he's so different. And the only thing that unites us together is our love for Jesus Christ and our love for his church, Grace Gospel Church here. Otherwise, I think we just might say hi, and that's about it. We need to be one in Christ. It doesn't mean that we have to have all the same likes and hobbies. But when it comes to our love for the Lord, our worship of him, our functioning as a local church, we need to be one in God and Christ. And what is the purpose for this unity? That the world may believe that you, that God sent Christ, that you sent me, that the world may believe. I wonder how much more effective the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would have been had there been more unity in the true church throughout the church age. I wonder how much more effective how much brighter the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ would shine from this place and shine from each one of us individually had we always been characterized by unity in God and Christ. The Lord goes on. That was twice. There's the other two now where he again prays for the same thing. And the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect. 
not partially perfect, not somewhat perfect, perfect, complete in one. And for what purpose again? That the world may know that you have sent me and I have loved them as you have loved me. And how did Christ love us? He laid down his life on the cross for us. He gave everything that he had. For us to represent Christ properly, to be proper, true, and faithful ambassadors of Jesus Christ to a lost world, to lost individuals, they need to see in us the same love that Christ had for us. He laid down his life for us. We ought to also lay down our life for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just uh, Christ who prayed this, but he taught this same truth that love is what will convey the gospel message to the world. He said in the upper room, hours before he prayed in John 17, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as, just as, exactly as, precisely as I have loved you. That's his standard, that we love one another, just like Christ loved us. And he loved us by laying down his life for us and giving us everything that he had. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by this love, this self-sacrificing love, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is what will show love. It was written about the early Christians. During 10 separate Roman persecutions of early Christians, when they were herded together into the arena to be put to death, whether it be by the swords of soldiers and gladiators, or whether it be by wild animals. What they did was they gathered the weakest, the youngest, the women in the middle, and the men surrounded the young and the old and the women with their bodies to be torn apart by the animals first, hopefully to satisfy the hunger of the animals. And you know what was written about them? Behold how they love one another. That's what was recorded of them. The way they died in the arena loving one another. Love is the ultimate display of our unity. It wasn't just Christ. His chosen herald, his chosen messenger, his apostle to the Gentiles wrote the same thing to the church of Philippi. If there is any encouragement of Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. And Paul phrased these four ifs in a certain way in the original Greek language that he wrote. If there is encouragement, and there is, if there is comfort, and there is, 
if there is fellowship, and there is, if there is any affection and compassion, and there is. There wasn't doubt in Paul's mind. He didn't use if like, oh, you know, uh, I don't know if this will ever happen. Every one of these should be true. But for us to have encouragement in Christ and to encourage one another, to have comfort of brotherly love in the gospel, to have fellowship in the spirit, to display true affection and compassion like Christ commanded in John 13. What must be true? For this to happen, what must be true? He tells us in the very next verse. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. One purpose doesn't just happen. It's not serendipity. Oh, wow, we all just have one purpose. No, there's an intention. It's intentional. There's an intentionality involved. For those four things, encouragement of Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and compassion, this must be true of us. We must have the same mind. To have the same mind, we need to think God's thoughts after him. We must all think biblically, think scripturally. We must maintain the same love that Christ had for us. We must be united in spirit. The spirit is thicker than blood. The spirit should unite us. Friendships in this world, friendships amongst believers, do not take precedence over unity of the spirit. We must be intent on one purpose, and that is to glorify God in Christ by our display of unity and brotherly love. How does this unity work out? What is the outworking? What is the evidence of it? Paul tells us in the next verse, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is entirely otherworldly. This is unlike the world at all. The world looks out for themselves first. Paul tells us, in order to truly be united in brotherly love, the unity and love that Christ prayed for and commanded, this must be true. We must be humble in mind. We must regard everyone else here as more important than ourselves. Only the Holy Spirit is going to enable us to do that. Only being filled, influenced by the Holy Spirit and having his fruit produced, is that ever going to be true? That I will regard all of you as more important than myself, that you will regard each other as more important than yourselves. And how do we do that? We look out for each other's interests, even before our own. This is the outworking of unity in true Christian love. 
I don't know about you, but I am humbled by this. I am crushed by the weight of this truth. I cry out to God, God, help me. I can't do this on my own. I won't even have the desire to do it. Apart from the indwelling spirit of God, producing his fruit, that kind of love for one another. There is a mindset, an attitude, a thought process that's needed. And Paul tells us what it is in the very next verse in Philippians 2. Have this attitude, this mind, this thought process in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to think as Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, thought. And what in particular is he talking about here? He goes on and he says, who although he existed in the form of God, Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be tenaciously retained in his grasp, but he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a bondservant, of a man. He took upon himself the form of a bondservant, and being found in fashion, or appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's the attitude. He laid down his life. He regarded all those for whom he shed his precious blood as being more important than his own life. Their blood, their life's blood, is more important than his own. That's the mind, the attitude, the thoughts that we need to have. Paul illustrates, regarding one another as more important than yourself, he illustrates that truth with the supreme illustration, Jesus Christ, who not only left the glories of heaven and became a man, but who went to the cross bearing the sins of the world and bled and died for others. That's what's necessary for unity, that we think in the same way as Christ and regard one another as more important than ourselves. Let's look at the symbols of unity. The first symbol is oil. In verse 2, oil is a symbol of dwelling together in unity. Symbols don't always have just one meaning. The context of each passage determines what that symbol means. Oil here is not a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It, it can be elsewhere, but not here. It is a symbol of dwelling together in unity. It's not a symbol of the source of unity, the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol of the unity itself. Verse 2, it. What is it? Verse 1, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It, the dwelling together in unity, is like precious oil. It, the dwelling together in unity, is like the oil upon the head. It's a precious oil. That unity is 
is like this precious oil. Not just any precious oil, but a particular precious oil. An oil upon the head, but not an ancient medical anointing for healing or anything like that. It's a very particular oil. It's like the oil running down the beard, the beard of Aaron. And it's not talking about a daily uh, uh, beard oiling or waxing to make it look shiny and healthy. That's not what this is talking about. We'll see in a moment what it's talking about. But it's like this oil running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. So much oil that it ran down to the edge of his garments, all the way down to his ankles. His garments soaked up this oil. He was drenched in this oil. It was a consecrating oil. Oil here is a symbol of consecrating unity. Uh, uh, another word, uh, sanctifying unity. It's being set apart for the purposes of God. When did this happen? When did Aaron have oil poured upon his head so much that it ran down, soaked not only his beard, but his garments down to the very hem? It's recorded for us in Scripture. Did you know that? In Leviticus chapter 8, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him and the anointing oil. Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing the Lord has commanded to do. Then Moses had Aaron and his sons come near and wash them with water. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him for what purpose? To consecrate him, to sanctify him, to set him apart for the purposes of the Lord. Aaron and all his descendants would receive no inheritance in the land. They had no land to farm. They were wholly devoted to the Lord. They served the Lord. It was consecration, sanctifying oil, to set apart for the purposes of the Lord. In the same passage, he also anoints with that oil furniture for the tabernacle and vessels, different types of vessels, cups, and so on for use by the priests and Levites at the tabernacle and later Solomon's temple, and then the temple in the Lord's day. Next, Moses had Aaron's sons come near. Moses took some of the anointing oil, sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments, on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. He consecrated, he sanctified, set Aaron apart for service to God, not service to the field. Service to God. He consecrated Aaron, his garments, and his sons, and the garments of his sons with him. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Well, this is the Jewish priest. What does it have to do with the believer? When you go home, if you have time today, sometime this week, read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Do you know that every single true believer in Christ is a priest? Every single one of us who has believed, trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation is a priest to God. Peter tells us that. We are, all, we, are a, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That is what, and that's a quote from the Old Testament, that's what God wanted for the Jews. But they didn't want that. At Sinai, they said, no, we won't go near the mountain. 
We're afraid you go. And that started the ball in motion with a priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi or Levi. But in the New Testament, God has brought about his original purpose that everyone is a believer priest to God, able to offer up sacrifices. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go to a, a, a location at a physical building. This church is the people. It, it's not the building. Our body is the temple in 1 Corinthians 6 of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3, the local church is the temple. All together are the temple. And in verse 6, the individual is the temple as well. Read 1 Peter. All of us are consecrated like Aaron, sanctified, set apart like Aaron and his sons to be priests to our God. That's why Paul said our body should be a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our priestly service of worship. Peter and Paul agreed on this. We are all believer priests, and we are all sanctified and set apart for God, not simply for our own purposes. The second symbol is water or dew, which is a symbol of life-giving unity. There is no spiritual life without unity. Unless we're united individually with Christ, there is no life. It's the life of Christ in us. Paul said this in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ, put to death with Christ, yet nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ living in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. We are united with Christ. If we have become united with him, he would write, uh, in Romans, if I have become united with him in the likeness of his death, surely we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Unity gives life. Here in verse 3, the psalmist uses water or dew, really snow, as we'll see, as a symbol of life-giving unity. It, again, Dwelling together in unity, in verse 1, it is like the dew, the water, the snow of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. Mount Hermon was the highest mountain, perhaps around 9,500 feet tall. Throughout the winter, snows fell on that mountain. It was totally covered in snow. It's way up in the north of Israel. The snows melt and come down and they enter the Jordan River to the Sea of Galilee. Here's southern Galilee. It, the Jordan River continues on down to the south to the Dead Sea with Jerusalem along here. Here, this picture may show it a little better. Mount Hermon, way up in the north. And then the snows melt. And the Jordan River is formed, Sea of Galilee, down to the Dead Sea. Here's Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Bethany. Throughout winter, 
snows fell. And by the end of winter, Mount Hermon was covered with snow. Notice, winter, no life. Everything's brown, nothing's green. Watch what happens when the weather gets warmer and those snows begin to melt. Look at what the, what's left on Mount Hermon and look at the ground around it. Even in the summer, the heat of summer, there is still snows, snow on Hermon. Look at the green. Look at the life. All that brown is now green. The dews of Hermon are a picture of life-giving unity. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For the Lord commanded their blessing, life forevermore. individually, without being united to Jesus Christ, you and I have no life. That life comes only from Christ. It is like the life-giving water of the dews of Mount Hermon that made all the surrounding land green with life. No longer dead, dry, brown, lifeless plants. It was all green. And that water gave life to man as well. The Lord commanded the blessing to come from the heights of Hermon. The Lord commanded the blessing of eternal life to come from the heights of heaven in his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ spoke of this in John chapter 7. Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit. See, in this passage, water is the spirit. It's not the word of God like in Ephesians 5, washing of the water with the word. The context always tells us what a symbol means. He spoke of the spirit as that living water whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit is the source of that eternal life. The Holy Spirit, Christ said, he would send the Holy Spirit to each believer in Christ. <clears throat> there is no life in any person without that life-giving water, without being born again by the Holy Spirit. Regenerated is the theological term. It means to be born again. And the only way to be born again and have the life of God, the life of Christ living in you, to have the blessing, life evermore, that the psalmist wrote about, is for you to place all your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. He went to the cross bearing the sins of the world. He suffered the wrath and judgment of his holy father, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that out so that you and I would never have to cry out those words. He took the judgment that every true believer in Christ 
deserved. But he took it for us. The wrath and judgment of Almighty God broke upon him. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never put all your trust in what he did on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. The work of salvation is finished. And then he died. Moments after uttering those words. If the work of salvation is finished, there's nothing you or I can add to it. We can't add good works to it. Otherwise, Christ was wrong. It was not finished if it needs our works. We can't pay for it. He completed it. He gives it as a gift to everyone who believes. Your prayers, your giving, your church attendance, your good works, nothing you and I do can earn us salvation. The scriptures are clear on that. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. The scripture says he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. I I urge you this morning, if you've never placed all your faith and trust in what Christ did for you on the cross, if you are trusting in anything else for salvation, I urge you, trust only in Christ. Your works will never save you. How many good works do you need to do to wipe out one sin? Is it one for one? Do we even know what all our sins are? We're blind to our faults and failings, our shortcomings, our character flaws, our deficiencies. Really, we're blind to our sin. We don't know the full weight of it. You want to know, you want a picture of what the full weight of it is? Look at the cross of Christ. It cost God his only beloved son. That's what it costs. You will need to die for your own sins. Or you can accept that Christ died for your sins. I urge you, I I beseech you, trust only in Christ. The scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Cry out to him this morning. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The way that tax gatherer did in the Gospels. Cry out to him for mercy. If you truly mean it, he will save you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's his promise. In conclusion, recall and take away at least this. We can only please God in Christ if we as believers dwell together in unity. And church, my brothers and sisters, just as an individual has no real life in themselves apart from Christ, they are dying every day. Every breath they take, they're hastening on to death. Every beat of the heart, they're hastening on to their death. 
just like the individual, the church too, unless it be united together, does not have the life of Christ living in it as a powerful, active force. We must be united if we are going to see the life of Christ manifested in our midst as a church. Remember, we can only please God in Christ if we as believers dwell together in unity. So let me leave you with a parting challenge. Today, will you begin to realize how important unity is to God in Christ? And if you do, will you make it a matter of daily prayer that you become united with your fellow believers at Grace Gospel Church? Will you today purpose in your heart to humble yourself and serve one another as more important than yourself? Let's pray with this scripture in mind. <clears throat> oh Lord, uh, our desire is not only to make your beloved apostles' joy complete, but your joy in us, Lord Jesus, complete. Help us for your glory to be of the same mind with one another. To have, all of us have your mind. Would you be pleased, dear God, to help us by your Holy Spirit to maintain the same love? Would you be pleased to unite us together in spirit? And, oh, Lord, for your glory and your glory alone, help us to be intentional about having one purpose as a church. Oh, Lord, we ask all this not for our blessing, not for our benefit, but for the honor and glory of your name and your name alone. Amen.